Monday the 18th of September, 2017. Now that term is underway, I've decided to get up an hour or so earlier every morning in order to work on this book. I'm not, not only am I finding it very therapeutic, but I enjoy so much talking to you, no matter how far in the future you may be. I enjoy speculating on what might have changed for you and what your lives are like now. At first you were strangers to me, but now as the weeks go by, I feel I am becoming very close to you, as well as being one of your family. I now feel that we have become close friends, and in sharing my life with you, it has brought me closer to those who have gone before me. My own parents and grandparents, for instance, of whom I was so fond, and yet, as time goes by, slip into the recesses of my memory. Of course I remember them with great affection and the many important events in their lives. But I am resurrecting so much more, no matter how seemingly insignificant. How wonderful it is that we can, through our amazing memories, forge a link with the past, the present and the future. As I retired to bed last night, having written as I did yesterday, I had a flood of memories come to me. I remembered how the bread arrived at her door in a horse-drawn cart. This was only the fifties, but it could have been much earlier. Things progressed much more slowly back then. And I am so thankful that I experienced this way of life, because I think it has helped to shape the way I am today. The baker man, as we called him, would call every day, and like all those who sold food from door to door, he rarely knocked but had a unique call, which was his, his alone, as did the fish man, the milk man, and the rag bone man. Now the baker man was different, because he brought with him an added bonus. Invariably, the obliging horse would leave behind a pile of dung, which to those who grow their own vegetables is like gold. If I, as a child, would take a bucket and shovel out to collect up dung for the gardener, then I was allowed to choose a special bun from the baker's trays in his wagon, which was drawn by the lovely old horse, of whom we children were so fond. He was very well fed with carrots and apples on his morning round. What bun to choose was a very difficult decision. There were the wonderfully geometric Chelsea buns, which I loved to eat by unwinding while you ate it until you got to the little soft bit in the middle, which was particularly delicious. They are still on sale today in good baker shops, or they're my favourite bath buns with very sticky tops and little sh tiny shiny squares of sugar scattered all across the top. And finally, they were the ice buns, which have managed to survive until today with their yummy blanket of white icing. And of course the inevitable doughnut. All of these buns were the exclusivity of the baker, as they were all made with the yeast dough. If you wanted cake then, you either went to a little cake shop, or you made your own, which most people did in those days, and took a great deal of pride in it too. The loaves on the baker's wagon sat on large wooden trays which slotted and slid in and out like drawers and these loaves were just as diverse as the buns. There were standard tin shapes, cobs 
which were round loaves, bloomers and cottage loaves, which were like a cob at the bottom with a smaller version baked on the top, with a hole through them both. Sometimes there would be the twisted loaves and the oh-so-glamorous plats. Although we mostly baked our own bread, we often bought a cottage loaf, and towards the end of the week we would buy crumpets or muffins. Sometimes we would see the muffin man, who occasionally still came around, calling out his special cry. Sometimes ringing a handbell, he would come strutting down the road with his soft flat cop cap with the wooden tray perched on the top, perfectly balanced. There would be a clean white cloth over the top and you would know that nestled beneath it were the perfect round additional English muffins. Back to the baker's wagon. After hugging the, the horse and choosing the bun, I would wait with my grandmother while she picked a loaf from the row upon row of crispy crusted beauties. The aroma was far superior to anything that comes from today's bread. The baker would then take a sheet of tissue paper from the soft pile that was always tucked on the bottom shelf and wrapped it around the loaf. He'd hardly covered it, just loosely wrapped once, let alone twice in plastic, which is found in supermarkets today. Sometimes you were happy to pop it under your arm to save him using his paper. If our bread got wrapped in this tissue... We always carefully saved it by smoothing it out and folding it for further use. Nothing was ever wasted there. was no such thing as king film or foil. If you bought the delicious buns, they were popped into a brown paper bag if you hadn't already eaten them before you had paid for them. The brown bags were also kept for further use unless they had jam or icing on them. Sugar could always be shook out. Few of us were ever ill, although it felt far short of today's health trading standards. Occasionally a loaf may get dropped on the road by a careless child, but it was picked up and brushed off and taken home and eaten. Nobody was worse off for the incident. I remember once collecting goat's milk from a local lady who calmly warned me to strain the milk when I got home as Penny the goat had put her foot in the bucket that morning and sure enough there were strands of straw floating about on top of the bucket. So I took it home where it was duly strained with no harmful outcomes. I think this is because our immune systems were strong and well developed then, probably due to this sort of behaviour. Even today, if some illness hits me, my immune system gives it short shrift and I recover within 24 hours. I'm not suggesting that people start behaving this way today. We have been too clean for too long and with all the other environmental pollutants. There were no plastic bags in those days. In fact, no one had heard of plastic. The nearest we had to it was a substance called Bakelite, which I remembered because we had a very old 1920s picnic set that we would take with us on a day out. No plastic, no dead marine life and unsightly beaches, no carrier bags dancing high up in the trees that stayed there until some kindly wind or gale would tear it down in frustration that the face of nature could be so scarred. I still now find it impossible to disassociate the smell of fresh bread with the fresh country smell of warm dung, both of which, to a country-loving girl, is far from unpleasant. 
Mixed with the smell of the painted canvas that stretched over the baker's van, heated up by the sun on a warm day. Home school went very well this morning, except that Jaunty still has a cough and is finding it difficult to settle. He managed early morning prayers and Bible reading, but was in danger of falling asleep through our time of relaxation and meditation. He perked up again for math, which he loves, and for English, in which he and Rosie are writing a story at the moment. By the time that we had done history, he really had had enough, and even the excitement of Saxon wars and the stories of the first proper king of England, offer building his dyke to keep the Welsh out, did not engage him. He normally loves the drama of history. After lunch, thought all suddenly changed. It was needlework with Auntie Rachel, and they are using for the first time the new electric sewing machines. The piece that followed allowed me to come back to you to write some more of this journal. There has been a contented and concentrated silence coming from the kitchen whilst I sit in the music room working. I've just been presented with two little blue bags, all beautifully machine sewn. Their, their day's schooling is over. Rachel says that they were very lively, enthusiastic and engaged. Jonty is interested in all things that are engineered and power-driven, and Rosie is a very homely little girl, always wanted to help cook or sew and wash up. And no, I have not raised them in a sexist, gender-based way. David would not approve of that. Left to their own devices, they've just fallen into the mould that seems to suit them best. It is always Rosie who wants to lay the table, a job that Jonty can never be persuaded into. But he does love cooking on a Wednesday afternoon, but he's never keen to wash up afterwards. Rosie is always keen to do his as well as her own. She loves all the bubbles and is very thorough. Jaunty, however, spent a lot of time with David recently, laying down the rubble for the shed base, and as a reward, David is giving him a corner of the shed for his own bench and tools. Jaunty has had his own tool set for some time now, with real adult-sized tools, which David sometimes borrows when he mislays his own. It is not uncommon in this house to find doorknobs, occasionally removed from doors. Just practising, he says. We had a drama a few weeks ago. Marshall had gone into the family bathroom to have a shower and John decided he was going to remove the key from the door by pushing it out from the outside of the door for a joke on Marshall. He succeeded. But in doing so, the instrument he used got stuck in the lock and Marshall could not get the key back in the lock to unlock the door and get out. I tried to poke it out, but I think that just I just made it worse. After a few tries, a now very frustrated Marshall said, Don't worry, Mum. I will climb out the window and come down over the roof. If you put a ladder up for me. Well, that would have been fine, but for the fact that the ledge that he would have to climb down onto was death-defyingly narrow, and he was going to attempt this with nothing but a large flowing towel around him. Fortunately, at the last moment, just as I was expecting the sound of the bathroom window to be slid open, I managed to raise the lock. By this time, I think that Johnty had fled to escape the wrath of his big brother. But he is brilliant at tightening up loose screws for me and knows the names of all the different screwdrivers. 
and he was only ten in August. It is coming up for supper now and David will be home shortly. Back to the kitchen for me. No, it is not a gender-based household. Although he tells me that when his friends at work ask him what he has got in his lunchbox, he does tell them what he likes best is the surprise of never knowing what I put in it and that he never knows what he is going to find. They're usually surprised that he never does it himself and is surprised that I spend all day in the kitchen and when he gets home from work he goes straight up on the roof. He's joking, of course. Who is he? Maybe we are a gender-based household. Whatever we are, it really works, and we are all really happy. Come to think of it, David does spend a lot of his time in his ovals these days. He calls it his weekend wear. Supper time! There is a pigeon that now sits on the table outside our back door. I'm not sure whether it is the mother pigeon, the father pigeon, or one of the two offspring, since all pigeons look very similar. I would have expected the two young to still have some fluff upon them, but this is apparently not always the case, as they develop very quickly. However, in spite of there being a lot of berries and seeds in the garden, and fallen fruit, it is definitely the most fruitful time of the year. This particular pigeon seems to be asking for food. She or he is very tame, and allows me to go up very close to her. We do not usually begin feeding the birds with their special diets of nuts, seeds and coconut shells full of seeds bound together with hard fat until later in the year. But this particular one is definitely asking for something or trying to tell me something. The children think that he is probably the mummy bird who has come back to say thank you. A nice idea, but I suspect that it is more likely that she is hungry. I finally relaxed our feeding times this evening, which are usually between late October and early spring, and gave her a small tray of mixies, which she devoured hungrily. I'm also careful now about leaving food out after dark, since we had had our rat problem, and certainly do not want the return of Rattus Norvecticus. Our friend the pigeon finished all of the seeds, so just to make sure that she was satisfied, I put out some more until I was satisfied that she was satisfied. I then brought that which was left over back into the scullery until tomorrow. She still sat outside and it began to become really dark and she should really be roosting in the trees for safety from Mr Fox. Eventually she fluttered to the top of a large ash tree and I could see her on outline against the night sky, an almost black silhouette. I wondered if she had been displaced when all the trees had to be taken down. If it is the mother, maybe that, that is why she nested in such a precarious and unsuitable, not to mention unsafe, position above my back door. How sad is that? If we only realise the disruption that we cause when we remove trees, the homes of so many animals and birds gone... How awful it must be to come back from a day's foraging to find your home gone, and in some cases, too, your babies. Left me feeling very sad and guilty about what had happened, although the trees simply had to come down because they were no longer safe. David and I have now learned many lessons for the future, like never storing paintings anywhere where they may overheat and spontaneously ignite, as they did in our case. 
Our pigeon may be totally disorientated and her life's routine all out of kilter. She needs some tender loving care until she is back on track. It appears that she has been abandoned by husband and children. Or maybe his dad and his wife and children have abandoned him. Shame, because the nesty bill that we were so rude about is still there looking just as precarious, but miraculously, during that alien hurricane of the other night, it remained in place. So I take back everything I said about it and have renamed it the Gaudi Nest. Another phenomenon I've noticed this year is that it appears that we shall be getting most of our nuts from the nut walk. The squirrels are not around to share them with us. They used to build their trays in those trees, which was very convenient because they grew beside the nut walk. It was easy harvesting for the two squirrels. We will try to replace the lost trees wherever possible. <laughs>